best, but he thinks he'd blow our mind. There's a star man waiting in the sky. He's told us not to blow it, cause he knows it's all worth what told me. Welcome to Michael and Us. I'm Will Sloan, here again with Luke Savage. Welcome back, everyone. So this week I went to see the new movie about David Bowie, Moon Age Daydream. You're a David Bowie fan, right? I mean, is there anyone who isn't a David Bowie fan? Yeah, I guess I was, uh, I just wanted to establish that this is an area of common <laughs> shared ground. interest. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it's called Moon Age Daydream, and it's this two hour, two and a half hour kind of collage like immersive sensory experience of, you know, hearing the David Bowie music, seeing a lot of concert footage and music video interspersed with little bits and pieces of interviews with him taken out of context. Frankly, I could have done with fewer of his interviews. <laughs> I, he, he's great. He's, He's a smart guy and everything, but I don't think the interview footage was particularly well chosen. And there are times in talking about his art when I thought he sounded a little bit like David Brent. (laughs) (laughs) But But the film, I mean, you're selling me on the film. That sounds great. Well, you know, here's the thing. So if you give me two and a half hours of David Bowie music in a movie theater, I'm going to have a good time. But this is an official David Bowie movie. This is David Bowie Enterprises or whatever is putting out the official David Bowie history. It's always interesting to see how certain cultural icons evolve and mean different things at different times. I remember in 1997, there was a movie called Velvet Goldmine by Todd Haynes, which starred... Uh, I think Ewan McGregor, and it was basically about David Bowie, uh, and it was about this gay child in England who followed David Bowie's career. But it's unmistakably about Bowie and about Angie. And one of the big things in it is how betrayed he felt by Bowie in the 80s, basically tossing aside the queer identity that he'd cultivated for the last 10 years. And this became sort of symbolic of, you know, Reagan-era America and the retreat of, you know, countercultures that had developed in the 20 years earlier. And it's interesting in this movie among other things you see how like that side of david bowie the outwardly bisexual side of david bowie has now been like fully reclaimed like there's a moment where you see him interviewed in sort of the ziggy stardust era when he's in full glam regalia and he's got these big shoes on and there's this very square british journalist talking to him and he says well what kind of shoes are these are these men's shoes or women's shoes and bowie goes they're shoe shoes silly and of course you know if you see it with the audience they all hoot and holler and it's a big trailer moment it's interesting how like as times change and icons evolve you know the people in charge of bowie enterprises have said okay well it's time to bring this back out it's time to make this central to the brand again (laughs) but i don't know um jean-luc godard died last week and uh, just thinking about godard a lot revisiting some of his movies i I think i think it's hard to have a relationship with godard that is not to some extent a love-hate relationship there are many times when godard's work is very frustrating and this or that You, you can you can have many different frustrated feelings about Godard, but watching this Moon Age Daydream movie right after being immersed in a lot of Godard is not going to help the experience because one of the collage things it does is it tries to situate Bowie within like the history of 20th century art and sort of position him as this like synthesis of 20th century like pop avant-garde and so you see this montage of like 2001 a space odyssey oceana and Delu, buster keaton you know stuff like that you know you see all the footage from all these you know iconic movies the monkey with the bone hitting the other bones or you know uh, the robot from metropolis and I-, I guess the idea is supposed to be well he's kind of like that 
you know <laughs> he's like he's like the the eye in a shenandaloo being cut you right. know that sounds a little <laughs> well and, and you know after thinking about godard for so much godard had this five-hour series that some people consider his best work called histoire du cinema which is this very poetic collage like well collage of the history of cinema that has this thesis at the center of it that was the Holocaust was this great rupture, not just in the history of the 20th century, but in the history of cinema. Cinema being the great art form of the 20th century did not do enough to stop the Holocaust. And then after the Second World War, as Europe was in ruin, Hollywood, with its sort of escapist, spectacular impulses, colonized the globe, basically. Now, you can have big issues with the ideas that this movie is presenting. I mean, I, I frankly think he puts too much weight on cinema, but... Watching like those clips of 2001 A Space Odyssey or Metropolis in, in the Bowie thing, I thought, fuck, at least Godard's giving you something to think about, you know? At least he's like giving you something provocative or giving you some, some, some juxtapositions that will startle you. Uh, whereas in this, it's just kind of like, you see, Bowie was a great guy. And and he's he's great because he's kind of like he's kind of like 2001 a space odyssey and and then also it doesn't mention like it doesn't mention the drug addiction it doesn't mention anything inconvenient about him where it's like oh he just goes to berlin to create new music you know Well this this is now uh, you know now my enthusiasm for this is waning as you as you talk about it more because I mean, David Bowie is a very interesting artist, you know, who went through many different phases. And but it sounds like this is more just about this is less about the art than it is about like situating him, you know, awkwardly or in a somewhat contrived way, it sounds like uh, within, you know, a canon of artists. So it's more about like putting him on the shelf, you yeah. know, making, making sure he's on the shelf that's, you know, nice and high up where everyone can see yeah, it. Yeah, he's, along he's with the right others. there next to Fritz Lang and Buster Keaton on the on the top shelf of the great artists. David Bowie made albums that, you know, in, in some cases anyway, are towering artistic achievements. Just if you tell that story, you don't need to sort of affix it to, you know, a bunch of other artworks to, you know, elevate it or whatever. It'll, it'll do that itself. So I guess this is maybe my sideways way of paying tribute to Jean-Luc Godard, you know, coming a week after his death. I spent like my whole adult life thinking about Godard and watching his stuff and constantly just like banging my head against it and being very frustrated with some of the ideas and the approaches he takes. But then once you expose yourself to that, once you try to wrestle with work that's operating at that kind of level, then you see something like this Moon Age Daydream movie. And it's like, good God, give me give me something give me something more interesting than this guy was so great that he felt he needed to go to Berlin to find new sorts of sounds. And that's how great he was. And then when the 80s came along, he decided he wanted to do music that was poppy and fun because he wanted to do optimistic music. But then, but then he realized maybe he had gone too far in that direction. Maybe he had become too commercial. So then he left that behind and became an artist again. And isn't it great? You know, after Bowie died, I watched a documentary about him that was a real letdown. And you know, it was a letdown because it was basically exactly what you just said like for the first 30 minutes it was quite compelling where you know it's talking about you know the early the early records you know hunky dory ziggy stardust but then after a while you realize that it's just you know these talking heads moving from one era of bowie to another in exactly the fashion that you just laid out uh where you know you get to like 
hour number two, and it's just every transition is just one of them saying like he he could he could do anything. He would exhaust himself on one thing and move on to the next. You're kind of like, what's the what's the big idea here? What's also, the- tell me about how Brian Eno played into this. You know, <laughs> tell me about the world that surrounded him a little bit, foreshadowing the movie that we're going to talk about in this episode. <laughs> well, I was going to say, I mean, uh, what you're what you're describing, like you know, thinking about Godard and your complicated relationship with him uh, while watching Moon Age Daydream. I mean, that's just like every movie we do for the podcast. There's a version of that where like, you know, we'll be in my apartment and, and we can like, we'll, we'll like one of us will glance at a bookshelf or something or we'll end up, you know, something will make us think of a movie. We end up breaking the hallowed Mystery Science Theater 3000 rule of like never mention a better movie in your shitty movie or whatever. <laughs> we do that for the podcast every time where, you know, we're we're an hour and a half into, you know, some, you know, just absolute slog. In this case, the slog was only 80 minutes, but it felt like much longer than an hour and a half just to break the fourth wall of the podcast a little bit you know during this one will and i were talking about stanley kubrick's uh you know failed napoleon film project we were talking about you know abel Gantz, the uh the 1920s silent filmmaker and his napoleon movie we talked about uh ai which i guess was the kubrick movie that spielberg finished for him i was thinking about walter benjamin there were a lot of <laughs> there were a lot of uh digressions happening throughout and then at the end of this film uh, you know, this isn't a spoiler, but uh, there was a version of Bob Dylan's uh, song, When I Paint My Masterpiece, over the credits, and a version of it I hadn't heard. The version on the Dylan bootleg series is, uh, you know, has piano. This was a kind of hoedown-y one with twangy banjos and stuff. Very interesting. And then that got me thinking about, like, Dylan's creative process and, like, what, you know, what does this song mean? Is he playing a character? Is he reaching backwards and uh, mythologizing his own creative process in the 1960s when he, you know, he would sit down and and write, you know, one of the great songs of the 20th century in an hour or something. Is there something autobiographical about this directly? Is he lamenting the fact that, you know, there's something he's always been reaching for that he's never been able to grasp? So is this incredibly beautiful song, a masterpiece uh, unto itself, actually an example of Dylan being kind of self-deprecating and uh, putting himself down? I don't know the answer to those questions, but they're all more interesting than anything raised by this uh, film that we just watched. And uh, that frequently happens during the Michael and Us podcast. Well, another movie that we talked about while watching this movie was uh, F for Fake, which I think uh, uh, the movie, by the way, is Tim's Vermeer. We'll we'll get to it. But Tim's Vermeer is sort of like if F for Fake were made by libertarians and if the thesis was that Elmir Dehori was actually great. (laughs) So also, before we get to the movie, we do have some plugs for you. Uh, This is a free episode. So of course, we will be plugging the Michael and Us Patreon. That is patreon.com slash Michael and Us for a mere five Yankees dollars a month you get an extra episode every week as well as uh, associated bonus content and uh, a sense of belonging and community our most recent patreon episode we returned to the well of talking about our favorite filmmaker not michael moore He's been surpassed. It's Alexandra Pelosi, the daughter of Nancy Pelosi. We talked about her film Diary of a Political Tourist, which was her chronicle of the 2004 Democratic primary, which is the hardest movie we've ever sought to find. (laughs) Yeah, that episode was very much made more interesting by the immersive aspect of it. I mean, uh, there was a continent wide uh, hunt with, you know, the help of of our community. Yeah, with the help of, uh, you know, many in the in the Michael and us National Guard who went out and helped us find this movie. 
a long journey, which uh, ended with one of them uh, having contact with several members of the Pelosi family, <laughs> uh, and and me nearly getting busted, uh, emailing them and blowing our cover on the whole thing. Michael and us nation has made contact with the Pelosi family. I just want to <laughs> stress that, underline that. I want you to think about that. Yeah, that's that's the level we're at now. Uh, but no, if you are finding us via the Jacobin feed, you may not be aware uh, that we do a whole extra episode a week that can be found on Patreon. In addition to uh, the extra episodes that Will mentioned, uh, we also put other bonus content on there, uh, including just kind of miscellaneous discussions the two of us have that don't really fit in anywhere. Um, but also, we have some great guests, uh, often via the interviews that uh, I record and often publish in Jacobin. Many of those are available in listenable form. There's been a pretty wide variety of guests. You know, I spoke to uh, Alex Gibney, the uh, documentary filmmaker, and uh, David Sirota, former speechwriter for Bernie Sanders, about their podcast on the financial crisis. Uh, Will talked to one of the world's greatest living film critics uh, a while back, uh, Mr. Jonathan Rosenbaum. I talked to uh, John Trickett, the uh, Labor Party MP, about the state of the Labor Party, I guess about a year ago. I suppose in a sense, Will, anyone who uh, subscribes now is getting better value than the people who subscribed, you know, when we did our very first Patreon episode on Star Wars The Last Jedi. That's true. You have like four years of content on there now, but but do not take that as license to uh, subscribe four years from now when presumably there will be twice as much content. <laughs> subscribe now. Luke, you also have some uh, personal plugs of your own. Yes, my book, The Dead Center, uh, finally comes out next week. It'll be out on Tuesday, uh, which, you know, functionally speaking, just means that if you go to your local bookstore, they may have it. Um, I've been instructed by my publicist to tell people uh, that they can be very helpful by rating it, you know, on Goodreads or on, you know, wherever they buy it from. Also, by going to their local bookstore and asking for it, because apparently that, I guess, bookstores will be more likely to stock it that way, which I guess makes sense. Uh, I will also be on stage uh, the day the book comes out. Uh, so this this is next Tuesday, September the 27th. I will be on stage at 7.30 p.m. at the Toronto International Festival of Authors on a panel called The New Working Class. I'll be talking about the book. That's going to be in Toronto at the Studio Theatre in Harbourfront Centre. Again, at 7.30 p.m. It's going to be about 75 minutes, 80 minutes long. Tickets are $17 regular, $12 for youth, or if you have a pass to the whole thing, I think that gets you in. I'm not entirely sure how that works, but if you happen to be in Toronto and you want to hear about the book... Uh, or enjoy that sort of thing, or if you're a listener to the podcast and are angry that Will and I have been teasing the idea of a live show for some years now. Almost the whole existence yeah, of the podcast. I've never got around to it. This isn't a Michael and Us live show, but I don't know. I guess it's one of us live uh, doing something. Feel free to come uh, and, and say hello. I'm not sure how things are going to work uh, after, but I'm going to try to be around. I'm going to have, uh, I think, some copies of the book uh, to sign for people if you want one or uh, if you bought the book already. Again, that's uh, next Tuesday, September the 27th at 7.30 p.m. Studio Theater in Harborfront Center. Hope to see a few of you there. But in the meantime, let's talk about two other public intellectuals. That's right, Penn Gillette and Teller. They are the creative masterminds behind the 2013 documentary film Tim's Vermeer. Sometimes when I'm trying to get to sleep, all I can think about is trying to paint a Vermeer, who some consider the greatest painter of all time. At the face of it, that seems almost impossible, because I'm not a painter. 
I'm a computer graphics guy, and we use technology to make a realistic, beautiful image. Tim and I have been friends for a really long time. I didn't know he had this whole little sub-obsession with Vermeer. I'm looking at this image, and I see something that looks like it came out of a video camera. This fall-off of light is something that an artist really cannot see. There must be a way to actually get the colors accurate with mechanical means. I propped up a small mirror at a 45-degree angle right on the forehead. You can see that they match. Holy cow. It took me about half an hour to learn how to operate a paintbrush. Good for you. It took me 40 years. <laughs> it's possible that he was more of a tinkerer, more of a geek. And in that way, I feel a kinship with him. So you're going to construct a replica of the exact room where Vermeer painted? That's right. The harpsichord, the Spanish chair, the viola de gamba, the rug. So look, I'll cop to the fact that I had never heard of this film, despite being obviously a massive Pendulette fan. I had never never heard of this In film. In all of the cultures <laughs> that I have studied. Oh man, you beat me to it. Uh, wow. Yeah, just like Buster Scruggs said, there's always a faster gun. I was waiting to bring that one in. People won't get the reference, but we, there was a, a film we watched probably four years ago now called Michael Moore Hates America, which is one of these right-wing anti-Michael Moore films where, you know, the big get for the movie was the, was the filmmaker got Pendulette to be in it to just, like, provide sagely wisdom from a couch. And that was a thing, like... Truth! <laughs> You're never going to get at truth in a documentary. You can come towards it, but you can never quite get it. The whole time Pendulette uh, talks with that kind of like faux profundity of Philip Seymour Hoffman and the master where he's saying where the guy's confronting him about, you know, the truth of his cult or whatever. And he's saying, like, we have not seen the pyramids yet. We know they exist for learned men have told us so. So throughout this movie, not Michael Moore hates America, Tim's Vermeer, every time Pendulette speaks or honestly, just any time I see him speak ever, all I hear is him going in all of the cultures that I have studied. <laughs> Oh, and he does a lot of speaking in this because not only does he narrate it, but he also appears as a talking head interviewee, which I think is a little much, you know. <laughs> anyway, uh, despite being a massive Pendulette fan, I had not heard of this movie until a few days ago. Will told me about it. Um, you know, sometimes we have a little back and forth, you know, in the Gore Lieberman studios, just kind of workshopping what we're going to do for the next week. Two sentences into his description, I was sold on this. It did not disappoint. Or, I mean, look, it did disappoint. It sucked. <laughs> <laughs> but but it did not disappoint as uh, fodder, as raw material for the two of us. Uh, as I used to say in the early going of this show, uh, there's a whole city to sack here. So let's do it. <laughs> for centuries, we have marveled at the paintings of the great Dutch artist Johannes Vermeer. How was he able to create images so realistic? How was he able to paint with light, seemingly just through the magic of his imagination? When people have x-rayed the girl with the pearl earring and the other great paintings that he's done, they haven't found the customary artist sketches underneath. It, it was as if he, he took light itself and splashed it on the canvas. How did he do it? Well, that sounds pretty interesting. I'm sure there's a great film uh, resting on top of that. Ooh, uh, tire screech, car, car goes out Record of the driveway. Scratch. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so the, the protagonist of this documentary is Tim Jennison, an inventor. Uh, he first came to prominence as the creator of the video toaster, which was this uh, sort of primitive way to create broadcasts via the computer, live broadcasts. And since then, he's created a company called New Tech that supplies a lot of devices to facilitate with television and internet broadcasting. Yeah, and I, I just want to say, 
hey, look, Tim Jennison is not, you know, he doesn't seem like he's, you know, at all like a loathsome guy or anything. But it seems very likely, uh, you know, based on the information we were able to find and based on the information that's, uh, you know, kind of shown to you in the film, you know, okay, he's an inventor, but I mean, he's 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 a capitalist. Like, it seems like he's probably made a lot of his money, at least uh, by patenting certain things. Like one of the things he seems to produce or his company seems to produce is some kind of camera device that's u- widely used in, you know, television broadcasting. So it's like, it sounds to me like the larger scale version of how, you know, Canada's Ford family, uh, they made their money producing like the little labels that go in gro- local grocery stores, uh, the little labels and tags and barcodes that go on things. Or like, I'm sure the guy who invented Velcro got extremely rich, you know, etc. That, so that's my dream. I'm always <laughs> hoping to sell the movie rights to this podcast and just retire on that. The reason I bring this up uh, is not to, you know, really make a criticism of, of Tim Jennison as such, but because I think that, you know, it's clear from the opening montage where Pendulette is talking about all his inventions and achievements. You know, Pendulette is a libertarian, obviously, and I think the movie really has to be seen in that light. I mean, I think parts of it are, you know, in isolation uh, interesting, and as I think you said while we were watching, could work very well in the form of a 20-minute, you know, YouTube short or something. This film has a lot more self-importance than that. It's a, well, nearly feature-length film. If it's a five-minute YouTube short, it's just saying, hey, isn't this neat? If it's an 80-minute feature, it's saying this is a statement about art. That's right. And I think in being, in trying to be a statement about art, Pendulette is, I think, it, uh, at least implicitly also trying to make a statement about, you know, how rich people like this guy are, you know, the Promethean engines of innovation and, and creativity. Well, in that opening montage where we find out about Tim Jennison's various achievements, it also shows us uh, just the kind of guy he is. He's an incurable tinkerer. He loves to, in his free time, of which there is apparently a lot. <laughs> yeah, uh, I want to come back to that as well. <laughs> uh, he, he loves to like do things like he'll create a little remote control plane, a toy plane made out of garbage that he found at various thrift stores. Or there's the, that talking duck creature yeah th- this is pretty funny because in the opening montage like there's a mix of things that like actually sound like oh that's a kind of like whimsical fun thing oh he fixed pinball machines that's pretty cool like very specific skill to have uh-huh. and then and then it's like yeah there's this one thing where there's just like this this little duck with wheels it, like it looks kind of like one of those like birds that yeah yeah the episode of the simpsons where homer like uh, gets disability and and wears a muumu and he has like the bird take over the job as nuclear inspector like one of those but with little sort of like fucking wheels on it or something and it's really funny given the like you know latent libertarian ideology in the film because it's kind of like saying like well okay society's very unequal it's just like a massive pyramid where the people at the top are like 10 million times better off than the people at the bottom but if you didn't have that you wouldn't have this fucking bird with wheels on it (laughs) (laughs) he he went to the thrift store and he got some garbage and he he combined it into just one piece of garbage (laughs) and that's the kind of innovation that we need to give these people space to create Uh, so anyway some years ago Tim Jennison read a book by the famous British artist David Hockney where Hockney theorized that the old masters like Vermeer instead of just creating these images out of thin air possibly use technology like a camera obscura or various mirrors and devices that uh, optical devices that could have assisted them in in the painting of such ultra realistic imagery 
allegedly, according to this film, this theory was quite controversial amongst the straw men of the art community, all of whom said, no, we must not allow technology and science to interfere with the creative process. Yeah, and so that is kind of constantly referred to as, I guess, you know, the the antagonist of the uh, in the movie. And yet, I, I don't think we hear from anybody who represents that point of view. I don't think anyone is really named. Like at one point, uh, Jenison says something about, you know, there's this modern idea that art and technology should never meet and it's like who says that what no, are you we, talking about no and like what it what even is this art and technology meet all the time <laughs> art is technology yeah a canvas and a paintbrush are technology what are you talking about but here's the thing art is not only technology <laughs> it's many other things and i feel like i feel like what they're really replying to is the people who would say that because when this came out i mean this movie has you know 89 percent on rotten tomatoes or some stupid grade like that but there were some critics like us who would say that this is a very simplistic and reductive view of what art is. Uh, anyway, we'll, we'll get to that later. Uh, he became very fascinated with this theory, became very fascinated with the idea that Vermeer was using these appliances and devices, and, and he felt a sort of kinship with Vermeer in this sense. He felt, well, I'm not an artist, but I am a tinkerer. And I would like to prove once and for all that perhaps Vermeer used this technology and see if I can create my own Vermeer painting. So the bulk of this 80-minute film is devoted to his efforts to reproduce by himself Vermeer's painting, The Music Lesson. And to do this, he sets certain limits on himself. Uh, He has to use only the technology and the materials that were available to Vermeer at the time, and that includes uh, getting people to model for him. He also does extensive research into the sorts of conditions that Vermeer was under. So he has a north-facing studio. He buys a warehouse space, basically, or rents a warehouse space where he creates furniture that is like the furniture that Vermeer would have had. In yeah, the and frame. I just want to say there are also a few shots that give a sense of like, okay, there's a lot of other people that are helping him with this. Like <laughs> he's got a whole staff, like he's able to pay people to sort of help build stuff. And thank you know, God this money isn't being used on charity. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Halfway through Will said like, what about like Tim's Flint water crisis? Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. <laughs> He'd like to see if he can perfectly reproduce a pipeline that can get clean water and <laughs> to Flint. Wouldn't that be nice? Yeah, although, you know, we found ourselves uh, kind of inspired by this film and, you know, hope in the future to make Michael and us as Alexandra Pelosi. The, the tricky thing about an Alexandra Pelosi documentary is, you know, you watch it and, you know, you peel back the layers and there's nothing there. And so you think... How did she do it? There's no structure that this rests on. There's no ideas. It just seems to have come out of nowhere. So, uh, yeah, I guess we'll hire actors and we'll figure out which way, you know, her studio faced and, you know, we'll go super method and we'll try to we'll try to see and probably fail uh, to, you know, to see if we can create our own diary of a political tourist. In, in this movie, Penn and Teller are really the unironic Nathan Fielder. <laughs> <laughs> well, and yeah, we should say uh, Teller is credited as the director, which is, you know, a bit odd because Gillette is just in your face constantly. There's one th- th- part where you can well, see. Well, this teller doesn't talk. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, somebody had to give the direction for him. There's one. There's one. Po- there's one place where you can you can see him. There's there's a shot that yeah you could think you could tell that like Penn and Teller think that like you know they're creating their own Vermeer with this single shot, their own one perfect shot where you know Jenison is at the home of I think it's uh, possibly David Hockney himself or maybe it's some Dutch artist I can't remember. And uh, there's a little mirror in the corner of the room so you can see the person holding the camera in the shot. And you know I thought they bet that they thought that was real 
all meta. And yeah, at one point you can, because, you can see because Teller. Penn Jillette understands that documentary <laughs> is artifice. And, and you, you can never quite overcome that, but you can, you can show the artifice. <laughs> uh, so from stem to stern, Tim's project takes 1,825 days from the beginning to having his own Vermeer. And by the way, spoiler, he does successfully paint a Vermeer. Although I don't does know. He, he doesn't. Does no, he, he absolutely does doesn't. Does he? No, I, he, he doesn't. But, but by this movie's standards, yes. in fact, Penn himself in his narration says, my friend Tim painted a Vermeer. <laughs> this, uh, this film uh, reminds me of, I don't know if, it, if they still do it, but the New York Times has this guy where every month he tries to learn a new skill in 30 days. And, you know, at their best, they're kind of funny little videos. Like, they can be interesting. You know, they kind of tell a story about, you know, can you actually master something through immersion or whatever. But uh, there's this one that I've always thought is extremely funny where he's trying to master chess so that, like, well enough to beat a grandmaster at chess, right? So that's the premise. And then right off the top, he's like, okay, well, there's no way I can master chess technique myself in 30 days. So what I'm going to do instead is I'm going to design a computer program that's going to outwit, you know, it's going to play for me and it's going to outwit uh, this chess master. And so there's like so much build up, you know, uh, as in this film, it sort of carries on for quite a long time. And then, you know, at the end of it, he sits down to play the grandmaster. And then the end of it's like, well, I couldn't, uh, couldn't do it. I couldn't defeat a grandmaster at chess by, like, you know, kind of fiddling around with the computer for 30 days. And, ah, interesting. <laughs> and that's kind of what this movie's like, except it doesn't, it, it doesn't know that. It doesn't, it's not able at the end to kind of, like, come to terms with what's actually happened. And it tries to put a positive spin on it instead. There is a great documentary to be made about this that, oh, would, yeah. that would understand that ultimately, like, there's a melancholy to this pursuit. There, there is a sadness to spending 1,825 days to replicate somebody else's vision divorced from all context. And then and then at the end of it, what do you have? Well, and there is one scene, which is, I think, probably the most affecting scene in the movie, where it's actually pretty funny, because initially, they're doing like a Michael Moore, like Roger and me style thing, right? They find where... out that they find out <laughs> yeah, the, the yeah. painting, the original Vermeer painting is held at Buckingham Palace, and they <laughs> like meeting Elizabeth, <laughs> they, they want they want a private audience, they want to give Tim a private audience with the music lesson before he embarks on his project. And Buckingham Palace says no. So they do a viral video. Video, doing Penn and Teller shtick. Penn Jillette in, in his full regalia demanding the Queen give him an audience. That's right, that's right. Yeah, I said meeting Elizabeth. I meant, yeah, Elizabeth and me. And yeah, so they're up there with, you know, the guy at the entry desk at Ford HQ, except it's a beef eater outside of Buckingham Palace. And he's saying, you know, sir, you can't, uh, no, sir, you don't have an appointment. You can't see Her Majesty. Just kidding. That part's not real. But the rest of it is basically just like Roger and me. But then <laughs> it's funny because, yeah, Jenison being a rich guy, it's like he does get to go in and he gets to spend time with the painting. He gets 30 minutes with the painting and then he comes out. But he's not allowed to reproduce it. He can't take a photo. Uh, but he comes out and he describes the painting and he's moved almost to tears by having been with this painting. He talks about how magnificent it was, just the, the intricacy of the brush strokes. Uh, the painting is amazing. It's, it's very different than I thought it would be. The reproductions don't do it any justice at all. The colors are more muted. It's, it's slightly darker. It's got a kind of an overall bluish cast. Um, but the, the astounding thing is the amount of detail. I put on my magnifying binoculars and looked at the virginals and every stroke of that decoration is there. 
uh, he, he relates to it mostly on the level of technique, um, but he's very deeply moved by the technique. And I have to say, I, he, I he, say, he specifically says the words reproductions don't do it justice. And, and I thought, well, yeah, there's something to that. Stop the film right here. Yeah. It's over. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. And, and yeah. I, I found Tim quite endearing in this moment because maybe he relates to this painting differently than I do, but nevertheless, he's moved by it. And people are very human when you hear them talk about the art they love. So, but anyway, he uh, determines that maybe the mountain is bigger to climb now, but by golly, I gotta climb it. The mountain's there. But it, it doesn't alter, you know, it doesn't do anything to the premise of the movie and it doesn't alter in any significant way or any in, in any qualitative way how he thinks about it. It's like his response to it is just, I need to try it more after more technology, more fucking mirrors in a room or whatever. There's a moment earlier in this movie where Penn is giving us a kind of potted history of art, a sort of two-sentence history of art, where he shows us uh, some piece of medieval art uh, where the perspective is, of course, very two-dimensional. And then he shows us a Vermeer and he says, how did art go from this to this the, the implication being that well of course they used these lenses and devices to facilitate uh, the the evolution the the march of progress from unreality in art to realism and this is very annoying to me because you know implicit in what Penn is saying is like well this is this is a march of progress you see that renaissance shit that 2d unreal shit like like that's like an old ipod that's okay? right and and you know you might look, say the same thing like looking at a later painting like maybe by like uh, Pablo Picasso or, or Vincent van Gogh and you compare those paintings to uh, you know where we're at today with Marvel's The Avengers and there's no comparison we're just always tending like uh, you know the arrow in Zeno's paradox to that final point we're always getting closer and we're, we're never getting there we see a lot of the Vermeer paintings in this movie and for all of this talk about the realism of them I mean I'm I'm very struck by actually the kind of uncanny quality the the element of unreality to them you look at something like girl with a Pearl earring. There's just something in the eyes that is not real. And that's kind of the soul of, of the art, you know? I'm glad you brought that up because it's something else that's wrong uh, with this kind of idea that, uh, you know, with, with the with the shot of the, you know, the, the medieval image, you know, next to the Vermeer where, you know, yeah, uh, progress and realism are sort of being conflated. There's no sense that art actually exists in a, in a social and a cultural context. Someone building a stained glass window in, you know, the 12th century or something, they're not trying and failing to produce a real image of St. Peter. It's not like Benedict the monk's St. Peter or something where he's like, well, I tried and failed to build a St. Peter and I, I didn't quite I didn't quite get there. It's like the character of images and the thinking that goes into them and the significance they have as objects and innumerable other things, you know, inflects how they look and the techniques used and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And throughout this entire film, we don't get any sense. Like our, our subject is Vermeer and this particular painting especially. And there's no sense of, you know, what, what was the context this was painted in? What does this tell us about Holland in the 17th century? Oh, sure. I mean, this guy proves that he can use lenses and mirrors to create a realistic looking image. But why did Vermeer choose this particular composition? Why did he put the guitar on the ground? Why is the perspective facing this way? Um, there are a million decisions that go into a piece of art, not to mention the cultural context yeah, what, that produces what is, it. What is the life of this art? What yeah. is it meant to people? How did it influence other people? Who were his influences? There's none of that. The, so, film, doesn't, yeah. the film treats those questions as so unimportant they don't even need to be gestured at. There's a scene early in this movie where, I mean, this movie is just shameless and 
the way that it pads the running time to get to 80 minutes. Yeah, and, this uh, is not an 80-minute film, uh, uh, although it did feel two hours. <laughs> uh, a pen at one point says... We wanted to run this by an artist, so we brought in my friend, the artist and comedian Martin Mull. And I do want to say, much more known as a comedian than an artist. Uh, but nevertheless, I'm sure he, I'm sure he does paint. Uh, Martin Mull comes in, and of course, like everyone, he's very impressed by some of the early tests that Tim is doing. And he says something like, wow, you know, it took me 40 years to master this kind of technique. And, and Tim says, oh, it took me 30 minutes. And there it goes to show you, I mean, not only is this guy so innovative that he can create a little remote control plane built out of junk but he has applied a fordist production model to art you know you give every artist a a little mirror and they too can create art you know we can get vermeers on an assembly line at this rate you know yeah i was finding myself wondering through like who needs to spend 40 years developing a personal style right (laughs) yeah yeah yeah. developing a point of view it's like uh you could have just used like a like i mean a coloring book you know is what a normal person would have done with this problem like oh could i paint a vermeer but yeah i mean the idea that reproduction is in some way synonymous with, you know, the original thing or that the authenticity of an original artwork can be captured in a direct reproduction. It just fundamentally misunderstands what art is. Now, he's a somewhat lesser authority on the subject than Mr. Pendulette, but I did just want to read a little bit from Walter Benjamin in 1936 here. This is from his famous essay, The Work of Art in the Age of Its Reproducibility, sometimes translated as The Work of Art uh, in the Age of Mechanical Reproduction. Benjamin wrote, In even the most perfect reproduction, one thing is lacking, the here and now of the work of art, its unique existence in a particular place. It is this unique existence and nothing else that bears the mark of the history to which the work has been subject. This history includes changes to the physical structure of the work over time, together with any changes in ownership. Traces of the former can be detected only by chemical or physical analyses, which cannot be performed on a reproduction, while changes of ownership are part of a tradition, which can be traced only from the standpoint of the original in its present location. The here and now of the original underlies the concept of its authenticity, and on the latter, in turn, is founded the idea of a tradition which has passed the object down as the same identical thing to the present day. The whole sphere of authenticity eludes technological, and of course not only technological, reproduction. But whereas the authentic work retains its full authority in the face of a reproduction made by hand, which it generally brands a forgery, this is not the case with technological reproduction. Now I want to read a little bit more because, uh, you know, he might, he might as well be reviewing the film at this point. The reason is twofold. First, technological reproduction is more independent of the original than is manual reproduction. For example, in photography, it can bring out aspects of the original that are accessible only to the lens, but not to the human eye. Or it can use certain processes such as enlargement or slow motion to record images which escape natural optics altogether. This is the first reason. Second, technological reproduction can place the copy of the original in situations which the original itself cannot attain. Above all, it enables the original to meet the recipient halfway, whether in the form of a photograph or in that of a gramophone record. The cathedral leaves its site to be received in the studio of an art lover. The choral work performed in an auditorium or in the open air is enjoyed in a private room. Skipping ahead just a little bit, one might focus these aspects of the artwork in the concept of the aura and go on to say what withers in the age of the technological reproducibility of the work of art is the latter's aura. This process is symptomatic. Its significance extends far beyond the realm of art. It might be stated as a general formula that the technology of reproduction detaches the reproduced object from the sphere of tradition. By replicating the work many times over, it substitutes a mass existence for a unique existence. 
and in permitting the reproduction to reach the recipient in his or her own situation, it actualizes that which is reproduced. These two processes lead to a massive upheaval in the domain of objects handed down from the past, a shattering of tradition, which is the reverse side of the present crisis, and a renewal of humanity. Both processes are intimately related to the mass movements of our day. Their most powerful agent is film. The social significance of film, even, and especially in its most positive form, is inconceivable without its destructive, cathartic side, the liquidation of the value of tradition in the cultural heritage. So Benjamin is beginning to pivot to a bit of a different point at the end there. But I think the basic point about reproducibility uh, is a very good one. Um, regardless of whether you think it's good or not, what he identifies is that there's just something qualitatively different when you begin to reproduce things, particularly in a mechanical as, a, as opposed to a manual way. Uh, there is something lost. And this is what the film Tim's Vermeer and the people involved, including Tim himself, uh, really do not seem to understand at all. I mean, Tim says it himself, right? Reproductions don't ju- do it justice. I mean, exactly. And I mean, as you said, uh, this film was critically quite well received, but there were some dissenters, including uh, the art critic Jonathan Jones, uh, who wrote in The Guardian, Tim's Vermeer is a film about a man who totally fails to paint a Vermeer. That's right, failed. This is not how the acclaimed cinema documentary by American TV magicians Penn and Teller bills itself or how it has been received by viewers, etc., etc. The result, we are told, is almost uncannily convincing. Tim uses simple technology to create a perfect Vermeer. I have to quote Blackadder here, it's a brilliant theory with just one tiny flaw. It's bollocks. Tim's painting does not look anything like a real Vermeer. It looks like what it is, a pedantic and laborious imitation. To make his pastiche Vermeer, the Texan tech pioneer goes to unusual lengths in this cutesy film. He builds a room of the same dimensions as the one depicted in the music lesson. He creates identical windows and makes period furniture. He gets the right musical instruments. He dresses up his daughter as the girl at the keyboards. All this is to test the picture-making machine he's invented, or rather, if he's right, reinvented. For Jenison believes Vermeer himself used a mirror and camera obscura to get his photographic view. Or rather, I want to interject here to say uh, that's a thesis he borrowed from uh, David Hockney and the physicist who uh, he co-wrote the, that the book with. <laughs> so, so the film is in its own way and the thesis is its own way a reproduction of, of something else. Working with a setup very slowly, Jennison produces a painting that both he and the filmmakers see as a convincing Vermeer. My friend Tim painted a Vermeer. He painted a Vermeer, enthuses Penn. But this is nonsense. Tim's Vermeer is not a Vermeer, any more than an airfix model is a flying spitfire. The film performs a crude sleight of hand by never showing us a close-up of the real Vermeer painting. And the real painting, of course, is, uh, is the one that he goes to see at Buckingham Palace, but, uh, you know, we don't get to see it. And as Jones continues, the only thing the film's audience gets to see is a poster. So it's a film about a man attempting to replicate a poster. It's like the horror film The Fly. The technology Jenison relies on can replicate art, but it does so synthetic with no understanding of art's inner life. The Vermeer, it spits out, is a stillborn simulacrum. So what does it lack? The film implies anyone can make a beautiful work of art with the right application of science. There is no need for mythical ideas like genius. But the mysterious genius of Vermeer is exactly what's missing from Tim's Vermeer. It is arrogant to deny the enigmatic nature of Vermeer's art. If this art looks optical, it can also look abstract. It is an act of seeing nature, not a work of copying it. Whether or not he made use of optical instruments, Vermeer looked at the world with a uniquely penetrating eye. He was able to paint what he saw with a delicate hand. If you can't see the astonishing nature of his talent... When you were standing in front of his paintings, you should walk away from them, not make a film about how easy they are to replicate. Tim's Vermeer is the equivalent of someone hanging a painting-by-numbers version of a masterpiece over the mantelpiece and claiming it's as good as the real thing. 
at last, an art film for Philistines. You know, I don't have uh, too much to add to that. I think he beautifully articulates it there. But if I can put my film critic hat on for a moment and just give Penn and Teller some advice about how to improve the movie uh, fully 10 years after they made it, uh, I would say... Pendulat, if you're listening. (laughs) I would say, think about how strange it is to spend over 1,800 days with this man as he does this project, including, you know, 130 days on the actual painting of it, including days and days, hours upon hours, where he's just replicating the, the pattern that is on the piano in the painting. Incredibly laborious work. You know, within 10 minutes of the movie, I'm convinced okay, Vermeer used this technology, fine. So if you're actually going to spend this much time and effort and money to prove this theory, you're proving something else. You're trying to do something else. Why would somebody actually spend their time trying to create a Vermeer? I mean, it's incredibly sad if he's so adept at creating art, uh, having discovered this, why does he have to conquer Vermeer? Why can't he put all of that effort into creating something of his own? And also, what is the human cost of doing this? You know, a, a better documentary would linger on the moment where his daughter is back home from school for the holidays, and so he puts her in a costume and has her pose for hours on end for him. Like, what does she think of this? And why is he able to do this for so long? Where does he find the time? You know, these are all fascinating questions that the movie doesn't, uh, the movie just takes it as a given. Isn't it great and heroic that he's spending so much time to replicate a Vermeer? Right. And, you know, to give him credit, right, what he does is not art. He's a technician and he's a very skilled one. You know, it's impressive in that sense. And everyone needs but... a hobby. That's that's lovely. <laughs> you know. Yeah. And again, most people would just get a coloring book or something. Yeah, yeah, but, yeah. but, but uh, you know, I'm glad you brought that up because I think this is the other major thing I want to talk about in relation to the movie. Um, The libertarian ideology in this film is, I think, both implicit and explicit, and it really operates at two different levels. First, in terms of how it thinks about art, because I think to be a libertarian is fundamentally to believe in capitalism not only as a, a system and, you know, as the most desirable possible system. I mean, I think to be a libertarian is truly to have a kind of theological belief in it, right? Everything in the world is a commodity. The capitalist economy, uh, you know, is a kind of spontaneous order, you know, that contains infinite multitudes. It is the actualization of technological uh, innovation, human creativity, uh, etc. And so, I mean, that speaks to, you know, what you called the kind of uh, Fordist idea of this movie, where there's an implicit assumption that something is art if you can just sort of reproduce it. Because the entire world, you know, everything, all the forces that drive the world are mechanical and instrumental. There's no mystery to anything. Uh, Everything is disenchanted. All that's solid melts into air, and that's good. So in that sense, I think the film's kind of uh, anemic conception of art and what it is, is an extension of a kind of libertarian ideology. So that's one way uh, libertarianism operates in this film. The second way is the way in which Pendulette portrays the central character and also doesn't portray certain other things that you might think would be worth including in a film like this, which Will has just mentioned. You know, Pendulette takes it as axiomatically interesting that this enterprise uh, exists. Not just axiomatically interesting, but axiomatically good. Yeah, that's exactly right. Pendulette, I think, believes that guys like this, rich guys, who are first 
and foremost inventors and creators as opposed to anything else, as opposed to like, you know, economic actors or people who hold the patent rights to certain things or whatever. These are the Promethean engines of, of the world. And so the kind of, um, I don't know, uh, Pyrrhic stupidity of this or whatever uh, is, is actually supposed to be, you know, noble and honorable and like worthy of celebration on its own terms for that reason. And again, that is a pure libertarian idea. There was a libertarian guy, I mean, a very dogmatic libertarian guy I knew in university for a while. Um, and I used to, you know, I used to argue with him, you know, playfully or whatever. But I used to just say to him, you know, okay, so you believe that there are certain individuals clearly that are, you know, I don't know, more excellent than other people or something. If they're more excellent, what is the need for society to be so unbelievably unequal all the time? What does individual people having access to like, a hundred thousand or a million times more resources and capital than other people. Like, what does that have to do with things being created? I mean, I also point out that, like, lots of creativity is not happening. Like, you know, Vermeer didn't paint these things because fucking some right-wing politician in 17th century Holland gave him a fucking tax cut or something. So many of the people who uh, supposedly created these great enterprises, you know, did so without those kinds of resources be- being available. And, and as I would argue, it's like, okay, so, like, what is the important of like, why should people have to struggle and toil? Like, shouldn't we be trying to create a society where creativity and innovation can flourish without those things? Aren't those things a barrier to them? Isn't it just the self-interested self-mythologization of like a segment of the bourgeoisie that gives us this idea that like this kind of toil is, you know, uh, virtuous in some way? And, and, you know, isn't that also just like a pretext for like making people who are never going to be billionaires uh, toil and calling that heroic? namely the ones who are working for the billionaires or in their uh, in their companies. So that is to me in some ways the real thesis of the movie. It's like it's not about art actually. It's about capitalism and how it's uh, it's inherently good. And you know, I want to say a few more things about this. I mean, the first is that there is something to the idea that innovation and creativity it requires risk, right? It requires waste, you know, excess of various kinds, surplus and, you know, in the case of technology, you know, surplus of capital in the case of art, you know, surplus of time. All of these things are necessary to produce, you know, novelty, newness, innovation, whatever. But it doesn't follow from that that we have to leave it up to a few, you know, individuals who having won some kind of like lottery of fate, either because they were born with an inheritance or, you know, made made money because they got, you know, the patent rights to certain things or whatever. It doesn't follow at all that this should be an individualized process that should just be left to a few very wealthy individuals. To this movie's implicit thesis that like, well, you know, you know, we may live in a really unequal society, but there's nothing we can do about it. And at least we got guys like this at the top who are experimenting and kind of driving things forward. I, I would say uh, it proves the exact opposite. The lesson of this movie is what if everybody had access to more time and more uh, resources of various kinds, more opportunities to flourish in whatever way is, you know, specific and meaningful to them. When I watch a movie like this, I don't think, well, thank God we have a system that elevates guys like this. Although, you know, I am impressed by this guy's technical skills. But what I think is, think about all of the innovation and creativity that we lose collectively uh, because so many 
many people are forced to live lives of you know toil where they don't have time to do anything besides earn subsistence or you know not earn subsistence you know i think back to there was a reddit uh, subreddit i followed at the beginning of coronavirus when the first unemployment checks were going out in the u.s and it was i think it was like r slash unemployment i don't know if i ever told you about this but i wrote about it at the time and uh, kudos to the washington post jeff stein for uh, for monitoring it but i mean this was such a tragic place you know for obvious reasons but one of the things that you saw again and again was people saying stuff like i have not had more than like two days consecutive off in my entire adult life after a month you know i was able to quit my nail biting habit that i've had for my entire adult life i've like bit my nails to pieces i've always wanted to play the guitar and i've never had time i've had it sitting around you know i've started playing the guitar for the first time i've been able to like sit back and think about what i want to do with my life and i've decided i'm gonna go and study graphic design it was hundreds or thousands of posts exactly like this. You think about how many people in our civilization don't even get to do like the middle class version of what Tim in Tim's Vermeer is able to do. And then you think about all of the art, all of the productive labor, all of the creativity, all of the invention uh, that is lost because of that. So this is ultimately a movie that thinks it's making a statement about art, and it is, but it's making a statement about how elusive and powerful art is, not how, you know, the right kind of wizardry with enough time and capital capital can like reproduce a poster of Vermeer. And it's also attempting to be a film about the Promethean spirit of innovation that's enabled by capitalism. And I think in its own kind of accidental and oblique way, it actually suggests the opposite of that. Everything is gonna be smooth like a rhapsody When I paint my masterpiece 